Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Lies Agreed Upon, the podcast about Hollywood and history. I'm Leah Parody. And I'm Brian Krim. Think of the things we'll be talking about today as the 1980s equivalent of the Khrushchev-Nixon kitchen debate. That was a moment in 1959 when the U.S. made the tactical choice to fill its pavilion at the Moscow World's Fair with consumer goods, like a replica of the modern American kitchen. The Soviet Union had its military and industrial might on display, but average Russians were far more interested in the gadgets, labor-saving devices, and gleaming amenities in the kitchen display than they were in rockets and engines. Khrushchev tried to make fun of it as trivial and feminine, but the capitalist blow had been struck. Jump forward about 25 years, and we're at the next era when consumerism was overtly championed as a political component of the Cold War. A key player in that consumer culture was the modern teenager. On big screens and small, A pop culture machine worked hard to squeeze every last dollar out of white middle-class America by catering to their entertainment demands. In these years, a new generation of Westerners were reaching their teenage years, the children of the baby boomers. These kids had lots of freedom. Baby boomers were notoriously self-involved. And the kids of middle-class baby boomers had big weekly allowances, forked over by those guilty parents. So it's no accident that media and technology targeted teenagers as major consumers. Yeah, I would like to have had some of that money forked over. But, you know, as we said in our last episode, this was a moment in history when, you know, for a brief moment, there was no war that any Western powers were directly engaged with. And as we discussed, this caused anxiety about whether the young were too soft to defend capitalism and democracy if the evil empire really did attack. Today, we're also going to look at films that can be taken as cautionary tales about the dangers of teenagers or young adults who don't take the Cold War seriously enough. Last week, we dealt with the question of whether young people were strong enough, tough enough to fight a Cold War war. 
This time, however, the focus is going to be on the seemingly apolitical, irresponsible, and antisocial nature of the modern video game playing white affluent American youth. Our more serious films are War Games from 1983 and The Falcon and the Snowman from 1985. But we're also going to throw in a little bit of The Last Starfighter and Ferris Bueller's Day Off just to spice things up. And they came out in 1984 and 1986, respectively. I love them all. Along the way, uh, we'll be reminding our listeners about the rise of Atari and then Nintendo video games and the arrival of the Commodore 64 home computer. We'll also talk about the launch of MTV in 1981. This was followed by the transatlantic epic Live Aid concerts in 1985. The same year brought the musicians' campaign Ain't Gonna Play Sun City, which went along with anti-apartheid, divestment protests on university campuses, and by the end of the decade, Rock the Vote had been founded, and that was specifically to target young voters. And while all our movies today star young actors who managed to steer clear of the Brat Pack label, we're going to bring in, even if just briefly, a John Hughes movie. So for listeners of a certain generation, namely ours, this episode will be a walk down memory lane. So what are our lies agreed upon for this episode? Well, one of the reasons for doing these episodes that are just steeped in the pop culture context of a moment is to remind our listeners that everything has a history. For many people, politics, economics, war, and diplomacy are what come to mind when we say history. And they are all legitimate things to focus on. But even though this podcast is about movies as historical texts, it's still easy to fall back on thinking of culture as stuff that simply enhances our understanding of the real history instead of thinking of culture being important enough to study all on its own. So it's not really a lie we want to refute with this one. It's simply a mindset that we are always trying to shift with every episode. That's right. And it shouldn't be difficult to justify, but sometimes it, you get that, that blowback. Uh, the second lie, which really is a lie, is that the political youth of the 60s had given way to the me generation of the 70s and 80s. And there certainly were examples of the message on TV and in movies. Most memorably, from 1982 to 89, Alex P. Keaton, rabid Reagan Republican, played by Michael J. Fox, and his sister Mallory, the clueless and materialistic sister, played by Justine Bateman, were the despair of their ex-hippie, crunchy granola parents on Family Ties. And on the big screen in Risky Business, Joel Goodson, played by our good friend Tom Cruise, is a rich boy and member of the Future Enterprisers of America. He decides to run a brothel in his house to fund repairing the damage he's done to his dad's Porsche. But it's all in good fun, and it really was. I certainly love that movie. So did I. But throughout the last decade of the Cold War, there were also ways that youth in the West took up more altruistic political positions, and on a massive scale. We've already talked about the rise of anti-nuclear efforts, and so we're going to leave that alone, except that one of our movies today deals with it explicitly. So we're not going to sort of discuss what was going on in the anti-nuke context that the movie takes place in, but just keep that in mind from previous episodes. But we're going to add to that by 
talking about teenagers showing a growing awareness of causes that were connected to global inequities, including very famously the famine in Ethiopia and other parts of East Africa and the apartheid regime in South Africa. Yeah, certainly I remember all the anti-apartheid movements, but even in high school and in college. Uh, Finally, we've talked in previous seasons about all the movies that came out in the 80s that critiqued American anti-democratic efforts undertaken in the name of democracy. The invasion of Grenada in 1981, and then the ongoing struggle between the Republican president and the Democratic Congress about CIA funding for the Contras in Nicaragua were the context for public interest in those films. And young people were part of that. So let's provide some cultural history context before we talk about our films. On August 1st, 1981, MTV first aired, one of these newfangled cable networks that ran 24 hours a day, like CNN, but for teenagers. Definitely remember that. It began with an explicitly Cold War opening tying rock and roll to America, democracy, and the West. Viewers saw a countdown of the launch of the Apollo moon mission, and after liftoff, showed Armstrong and Aldrin planting a flag on the moon. But it was a flag that said MTV. What follows was the Buggles' video killed the radio star, Pat Benatar's You Better Run, and then the VJs explaining what MTV was all about. Treating teenage interests, latest music releases and concert dates, like news. Seven, six, five... We've gone for main engine start. We have main engine start. Ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. This is it. Welcome to MTV Music Television, the world's first 24-hour stereo video music channel. Just moments ago, all of the VJs and the crew here at MTV collectively hit our executive producer, Sue Steinberg, over the head with a bottle of champagne, and behold, a new concept is born. The best of TV combined with the best of radio. Now, starting right now, you'll never look at music the same way again. I'm Alan Hunter. We'll be covering the latest in music news coast to coast here on MTV Music Television. So why are we talking about this? Well, our movies today are all about the supposed frivolity and self-absorption of teenagers and young adults, the apolitical cluelessness of selfish and entitled young men and the occasional woman who see nothing wrong with breaking the law if they decide their own moral compass will allow it. And this was a very common characterization of the MTV generation. Too busy playing video games to go outside and do something healthy in the fresh air. Too obsessed with their own comforts to understand the sacrifice of earlier generations. And almost most importantly, there was the implication that these young people were too shallow to take seriously the existential threat of the Cold War and the evil empire. Reagan felt the need to remind the youth of America in 1983 that the youth of an earlier era understood this threat. I heard a young father, 
very prominent young man in the entertainment world, addressing a tremendous gathering in California. It was during the time of the Cold War, and suddenly, though, I heard him saying, I would rather see my little girls die now, still believing in God, than have them grow up under communism and one day die no longer believing in God. There were thousands of young people in that audience. They came to their feet with shouts of joy. They had instantly recognized the profound truth in what he had said. Yes, let us pray for the salvation of all of those who live in that totalitarian darkness. Pray they will discover the joy of knowing God. But until they do, let us be aware that while they preach the supremacy of the state, declare its omnipotence over individual man and predict its eventual domination of all peoples on the earth. They are the focus of evil in the modern world. But at the same time, as we saw with the use of the moon landing to launch MTV, consumerism was being sold, excuse the pun, as the highest form of patriotic behavior that Americans could engage in. And the quintessential object of Cold War consumption was a personal computer, including that awesome home video game console. Why? Because the personal computer was a perfect example of something that had developed as a Cold War technology, a military technology, that had now become a consumable good. In the 1950s, the USSR didn't understand the model kitchen at the Moscow World's Fair was a weapon. And now, in the 1980s, the Commodore 64 and the Atari and Nintendo consoles were a similar stark reminder of the technological advances of the West and the openness of Western society. So, in that context, let's start looking at our films. Can't Wait, War Games, came out in 1983, was directed by John Badham, whose filmography definitely tells us that the Cold War commentary part of this movie was probably not its intent. After his breakout film, Saturday Night Fever, Adam directed light and fluffy 80s popcorn movies we associate with that decade, such as Short Circuit and Stakeout. And I'd like to give a recommendation here for Adam's very first film, The Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings, starring Richard Pryor, Billy D. Williams, and James Earl Jones, and was produced by Barry Gordy of Motown fame. It's a totally crazy and funny movie. It really is, and uh, completely out of alignment with these other films, uh, which is why <laughs> I think it's great that we're, we're, we're mentioning it here. Anyway, back to War Games. It stars, of course, Matthew Broderick as David Lightman, a video game nerd. It also stars another uh, young actress who did kind of get labeled in with the Brat Pack, notably because she was in The Breakfast Club, and that's Ali Sheedy, playing Broderick's plucky girlfriend. David Lightman thinks he's breaking into a video game company's computer system to get early access to the latest video games before their official release. So in essence, committing intellectual theft. But it's Matthew Broderick, so we still think he's a great kid, and we're rooting for him. Yeah, and we all wanted to see those video games too, so we totally understood. 
But the thing is, he's actually accessed the Whopper, War Operations Plan Response, a war game simulator used by the military. He accidentally sets in motion Global Thermonuclear War, a war game simulation. Dabney Coleman and John Wood are the adults. Coleman is the hawkish intelligence agency leader, McKittrick, who refuses to believe U.S. high-tech weaponry could be so easily manipulated by a kid. And John Wood, as Professor Falcon, is a reclusive creator of the simulation. After the authorities realize Lightman is the source of the break-in, they assume he's a Soviet operative and they bring him to the NORAD bunker in Colorado. He can't convince them he's just a video game fan because, again, how could it, you know, someone so disheveled break into their top secret computer? And he also can't convince them that what he's figured out is that the simulation is still running and, can trig- and could actually trigger a real World War III. So Lightman escapes in order to find the game's author, Professor Falcon. He and Jennifer, Ali Sheedy, find Falcon and convince him what's going on and that he must help. Notice that the message isn't that young people need to be convinced how serious the Cold War is. It's that young people need to convince the adults that the old Cold War calculus is immoral. So Falcon jumps on board. He alerts NORAD and they're rushed back there. Uh, Falcon convinces Barry Corbin, another great character here, who who's this cigar chomping Texas cowboy general uh, who doesn't like computers and thinks we should just be you know flying by the seat of our pants, not respond to the simulation. Um, so you see this idea where there's a cultural clash between Barry Corbin, an old school Air Force general, and the civilian sort of militarist Dabney Coleman. And at the end of this kind of crazy scenario, one of my favorite lines is when uh, Barry Corbin turns to Dabney Coleman and goes, Mr. McKittrick, after careful consideration, I've come to the conclusion that your new Whopper system sucks. (laughs) And I still use that line all the time, but it really captures this kind of debate that was happening in real life. Exactly. I love Barry Corbin. And I don't care that he just basically plays the same character over and over again because it's such a fun <laughs> character. Anyway, we've talked about Abel Archer in previous episodes. And so we want to point out that here we get that scenario playing out in reverse. With with Abel Archer, thankfully, the USSR decided it just didn't make sense that the West was launching a full-scale nuclear attack. And so they decided that it had to be an exercise and they didn't respond. Here, the logic is presented to the Americans by Falcon. I don't know what you think you could do here, Stephen. How far is it gone? The president's about ready to order a counter-strike. That's what we're recommending you do. It's a bluff, John. Call it off. No, it's not a bluff. It's real. Hello, General Berenger. Stephen Falcon. Falcon, you picked a hell of a day for a visit. Uh, uh, General, what you see on these screens up here is a fantasy, a computer-enhanced hallucination. Those blips are not real missiles. They're phantoms. Jack, there's nothing to indicate a simulation at all. Everything's working perfectly. But does it make any sense? Does what make any sense? That. Look, I don't have time for a conversation right now. General... Are you prepared to destroy the enemy? You betcha. Do you think they know that? I believe we've made that clear enough. Then don't. Tell the president to write out the attack. Sir, they need a decision. General, 
Do you really believe that the enemy would attack without provocation, using so many missiles, bombers, and subs, so that we would have no choice but to totally annihilate them? One minute and 30 seconds to impact. General, you are listening to a machine. Do the world a favor and don't act like one. Yes, in, in the end, the game has to be shown the futility of the arms race. An endless number of games like Tic-Tac-Toe finally prompts a computer to say the only way to win the game is not to play. You kind of see this same message replicated in other films where there's the prospect of an accidental nuclear war. Uh, Crimson Tide, for example, which is you know the rogue submarine uh, where there's Russian rogue submarines about to potentially launch an attack. And you have this debate between Denzel Washington, who's a younger sub-captain who's far more sort of educated and modern, versus Gene Hackman, the old school cold warrior who just tells me, you know, push me, push a button and off it goes. And the uh, the logic with Denzel Washington that kind of wins the day is that, you know, in the nuclear age, the true enemy is war itself. And that's really, I think, War games originally taught us this generation that that lesson. But it all starts with a home computer. And that is a decidedly Cold War development, as are video games. So let's take a little detour and remind our listeners about the Commodore 64, Atari, and Nintendo. The Commodore 64 was the first really reasonably priced home computer, intended for general use, not for experts or professionals. It was released in 1982, and it dominated 30 to 40% of the PC market between 1983 and 1986. And that, we say PC, but that includes Mac products or Apple products as well. And it was sold in retail stores, not just computer stores. And you could play games on it. And we had a Commodore 64. And the very first thing I did was learned, because back then you had to do your own uh, coding, like at the very basic level, or you, you could on them. And I coded it so that it would mimic the language of the Whopper so that I could pretend <laughs> that I was typing the um, Matthew Broderick side yeah. and that then the Whopper was responding. My brother found it very amusing. Oh, that, yeah, anyway. I, that's really, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I certainly remember the first kid on my block to get the Commodore 64. We all became his friend pretty quickly. But the birth of the video game happened much earlier in the 50s, technically. But it was the Atari arcade game, Pong, that captured kids' imaginations in 1972. By the early 80s, video games weren't just in the arcade. They had found their way into people's homes, but not on the computer. The games were cartridges, and Atari, Coleco, and Mattel all had machines for home use. But the quality was so much worse than the arcade games that sales of these consoles had plummeted. But one of the things you could do with the Commodore 64 was play games without a separate console. Here's an early ad, and we can hear that children, obviously, are specifically being targeted. I can imagine this ad playing on Saturday morning TV. I'm more
64 lets you play hundreds more games than any video machine. Plus, draw, program, even do music. I'm more alive than ever before. And my friends are knocking down my door. Cause now we're into so much more. We're into our Commodore 64. So David Lightman's willingness to do anything to get a hold of these new games is the result of both these things. The poor quality of console games in the early 1980s and the ability to play games on the new, reasonably priced, consumer-grade home computers. Meanwhile, in the Soviet Union in the same period, only about one-third of large industry and utilities were even networked to a computer, whereas in the United States we were almost at 100% at that point. And the ministry that was in charge of developing computer technology didn't think that computers in people's homes was technology worth prioritizing, particularly in the cash-strapped Soviet Union of the 1980s. Yeah, in 1984, the ban in the West on selling personal computers to the Soviet Union was lifted, but only elites could afford them. So the lack of any homegrown PC technology, as well as the realization in the West that home computers were a hugely effective cultural symbol of one, free access to information, two, the availability of technology intended for civilian and not military use, and three, the affordability of that technology for Western families must be understood as a as political sub, subtext for all of the conspicuous consumption of 80s culture. David Lightman even has a computer in his bedroom, suggesting the family might have more than one. But Lightman also sees global thermonuclear war as a cool subject for a video game, something to be taken lightly, totally disconnected from real life, and certainly not anything he has to worry about. Until he does. Here, the young people transform from apolitical, entitled suburbanites into the saviors of the entire planet because they are smart, resourceful, and earnest. Meanwhile, all of the adults in war games, from David's parents to John Corbin's good old boy general to Dabney Coleman's Weasley technocrat, even to John Wood's grieving but also incredibly self-indulgent in the face of nuclear Armageddon, Professor Falcon, they're either stupid or jaded or so stuck in their ways that they truly don't see disaster staring them in the face. But David and Jennifer think anything is possible and try and succeed in saving the world. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. On the other hand... We also have The Two Young Men and The Falcon and the Snowman, starring Timothy Hutton and Sean Penn. Paired again after Taps, here they are a bit older and definitely less likable. Based on a true story from the 1970s, the film was directed by John Schlesinger, 
whose film Midnight Cowboy won him a Best Director Oscar and won Best Picture. He also directed Billy Liar, Darling, and Marathon Man. This time, Hutton plays Christopher Boyce, an aimless and wealthy young man from Orange County, California. His father, a former FBI official, played by the always great Pat Hingle, uses his connections to get Christopher a job with a defense contractor whose contract is to receive and transmit secret communiques for their clients, which includes the CIA. Yeah, and it's kind of remarkable as someone who was briefly in the intelligence community to see how completely lax and crazy the the whole situation was to just give a kid like that all this access. But that is also part of the true story. Now, in his high high security clearance job, uh, Boyce becomes disillusioned with America and its actions in the name of Cold War security. He's literally reading kind of the, the messages around the world. And the catalyst is in particular a communique that spells out how the CIA has manipulated the political scene in Australia to ensure the failure of the democratically elected government of the Democratic Socialist Party there to make way for a more amenable um, candidate for the United States. Now, despite the fact that he's signed a security agreement, Boyce asks his childhood friend Dalton to approach the Soviet embassy in Mexico City and offer to sell them whatever useful information Boyce comes upon as he receives and transmits. A small hitch, just a small hitch, is that Dalton, played brilliantly by Sean Penn, just happens to be a drug dealer and an addict. Yes, and some of my favorite scenes in The Falcon of the Snowman are when the poor Russian KGB people have to deal with Dalton. You, all, you really feel sorry for them because they're professionals and here's this completely out of control Sean Penn character. So initially, Dalton doesn't want to do it, saying he might be a drug dealer, but he's a patriot. But after he's arrested, uh, he decides that jumping bail and fleeing to Mexico is a better option and that selling secrets will actually provide him with an income. So over time, Boyce passes material to Dalton, who delivers it to Alex, a Soviet operative in the embassy, played by David Suchet. But Boyce gets discouraged, feeling that the Soviet agent and the government he represents, the Soviet government, is as dishonorable as the U.S. and their operatives. So really, just to spell this out here, we've got a guy who is supposedly disillusioned, but he's selling these secrets. He's not giving them away. And then somehow he thinks that he is so important in the grand scheme of things that selling these secrets to the Soviet Union is going to somehow make a noticeable difference within a very short period of time. Um, And of course, we've got Dalton, who gets careless because of his ever-worsening heroin addiction. Uh, He wants to expand the opportunity so that he's not just making money from selling, uh, you know, U.S. security secrets, but also make money from selling drugs. He wants to kind of have two lines going at the same time. So Boyce wants out, but Dalton wants more. And meanwhile, as you said, Alex is just getting impatient with both of them. Yes, I think it's when Dalton says, can I just use your diplomatic courier bag to smuggle heroin? <laughs> that they really uh, like this is 
you know, we're civil servants. We're, we might be KGB, but we're civil servants. Yeah, it's, it's very much uh, not just Americans fed up with these teenagers. The Russians are, too. Eventually, Dalton is arrested by the Mexican police, and they try to frame him for a murder. He refuses to admit to the murder, and eventually he's given the choice of extradition to the U.S. or to the Soviet Union. As soon as he crosses a border back into the U.S., he's picked up by the marshals. Boyce, who's increasingly feeling like he's going to be uh, picked up and he's watched, is actually finally arrested as well. Under interrogation, Boyce describes what motivated him to betray his country. Let's listen to that. July 29th, 1974, you signed a security agreement that you would not transmit classified information to any unauthorized person or agency. That's correct. Have you, in fact, violated that agreement? You bet. Did you ever remove any NSA ciphers from the communications room? Ciphers, uh, pilot Twixes, Argus, Rylite data, ground resolution studies, uh, performance sheets. How long have you been an agent for the KGB? I've never been an agent for the KGB. I work for no one but myself. I belong to no political organizations other than the Democratic Party. How much money did you receive from the Russians? About $20,000. Money's never been real important to me. Earlier, you made a reference to CIA activities unrelated to the satellites. Could you be more specific? I haven't mentioned a word about CIA, but I could be very specific. Who did you receive your instructions from? My conscience. I know a few things about predatory behavior. And what was once a legitimate intelligence gathering agency is now being misused to prey on weaker governments. So at the end of it all, both men are convicted in real life. Boyce was sentenced to 40 years in prison, and Dalton was sentenced to life. And the film critic Roger Ebert at the time said that the movie, quote, succeeds in an admirably matter-of-fact way in showing us exactly how these two young men got in way over their heads. This is a movie about spies, but it's not a thriller in any routine sense of the word. It's just the meticulously observant record of how naivete, inexperience, misplaced idealism, and greed led to one of the most peculiar cases of treason in American history. Now, I have to say that I think that Roger Ebert let them off the hook a bit here (laughs) because that naivete, inexperience, and misplaced idealism really, to me, looked more like kind of petulant entitlement. But maybe that's through the lens of, you know, 30 intervening years. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think maybe when I first saw it, I was I could kind of understand the, you know, you don't understand me, parents. But it was really he was finding excuse. They're both finding excuses to act <laughs> out, and they're not likable. That not that Reed Roger Ebert saying it either, but they're certainly not. Uh, they didn't seem naive to me at all. They just seemed really nihilistic in a way, and um, and that's a part of the point in including this movie here, you know, one of the key components of this movie is how casually the men think about their loyalty to their country and how they sell secrets with no thought to the damage it might do. Dalton is looking at espionage as simply another illegal way to get money, you know, a side hustle to his drug business, or maybe the drugs become the side hustle to the espionage. It doesn't really matter. It's something to just make life a little bit easier and avoid reality. Yeah. And 
And although Boyce eloquently sets out his disillusionment for his FBI interrogators as Hutton plays him, the motivation is as much petulance as anything else. Boyce is angry that he can't find something to give his life meaning. He left the seminary because that didn't do it for him. He got the high security job because he thought it would make him special. But it ends up being just a glorified boondoggle. He and his co-workers in the vault spend their days goofing off, drinking and being bored. Yeah, those are those are pretty shocking scenes. And one of his co-workers is a really embittered Vietnam veteran. I think there was also a little of that. But, you know, once he, he's gone from being this soldier to now he's spending his days inside a, a, a skiff, you know, a sensitive compartmentalized information facility with doing nothing and getting angry about it. So there's there's a lot of other issues as well. So in this instance, the 80s commentary on unmotivated, weak youths who can't be trusted to defend the nation against the communist threat actually seems to be right on track. This might be a real story from the 70s, but the casual drug use and the entitlement seem to be a pretty good companion to other movies and books from the 80s, most notably Jay McKerney's book, A Bright Lights, Big City, that was made into a movie starring Michael J. Fox, Alex P. Keaton himself. But here's a counter-narrative of the era. Remember our second lie, that all the teen and the young adult culture of the 70s and 80s was selfish and shallow. The Falcon and the Snowman certainly reinforces that. And so does War Games a bit, at least in, you know, who these kids are when the movie starts. But when called upon to act, they do. We opened this episode with the first minutes of MTV in 1981. But by 1985, MTV was broadcasting the Live Aid concerts in, at Wembley Stadium in London and in Philadelphia. The project was spearheaded by, of all things, a rock and roll artist. Bob Geldof's initial effort was to record a Christmas single and donate all the profits to famine and relief in Ethiopia. But this was so successful that it became something much bigger. On July 13th, 1985, 16 hours of musical performances took place in the two locations simultaneously. Sure, it was a telethon, but Jerry Lewis was nowhere to be found. Instead, it was an incredibly ambitious undertaking. Phil Collins even performed at Wembley, then got on the Concord and arrived in Philadelphia in time to perform there as well. There were glitches, sure, they were inevitable, but they kind of just served to remind everyone that this was all going down live. And I remember, I mean, I was certainly somebody that watched, you know, it was an event you know, you started watching the UK stuff first because they were all those hours ahead of us. And then the US stuff kicked in and then both countries are going simultaneously. And then it eventually ends in Philadelphia. I mean, it was pretty amazing. And depending on how it's measured, Live Aid raised between 125 
and $175 million for African famine relief. Yeah, I think I forgot about the, the Phil Collins thing, but now that you mentioned it, 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 it came back to me. And that idea of a new generation of politically aware and active musicians and music lovers was expanded on by the creation of Artists Against Apartheid by Stephen Van Zant of E Street Band fame and fellow musician Art Baker and the release of the song Sun City, calling for a cultural boycott of South Africa. This helped to mainstream the anti-apartheid movement around the world. The regime in South Africa had been consistently supported by Western powers as part of the Cold War calculus. The African National Congress was seen as a socialist organization, and therefore, in typical Cold War fashion, more of a danger than apartheid was. But as a result of the success of Live Aid, the actions of artists united against apartheid, and the support of MTV in publicizing all of these things, universities around the U.S. were successfully pressured into divesting of South African holdings, and other anti-apartheid boycotts took hold. And then, finally, not to leave MTV too quickly, by 1990, MTV had thrown their might behind electoral politics in the U.S. by partnering with a new organization called Rock the Vote, which was dedicated to increasing voter turnout among young people. Here's a couple of early ads sounding like, you know, tortured, <laughs> sincere musicians who want to change the world. Anyway, here's a couple of early ads with Chris Cornell and Lenny Kravitz. Hi. Instead of giving you advice, I could give you some information. If you're 18 years old or older and an American citizen, you're eligible to vote. You can't dangle carrots in front of young people and say, if your favorite rock star tells you to vote, then maybe you should go vote. Tell them what's bugging you. Tell them to get lost. Tell them what you believe. Tell them what's on your mind. On the way you see Tell them what you believe. You got the right. It's protected by the First Amendment. Speak your mind and vote. It ain't illegal yet. Oh, yes. Uh, and before we finally stop talking about MTV, it's worth revisiting our first lie, which is basically just a reminder that what's, you know, what we're always about here at Lies Agreed Upon is emphasizing that everything including pop culture, has a history. And that culture is a driver of history just as much as diplomacy or economics. You know, it's very important to, to not be snobs about history and to realize that everything, including a TV network that at least for its first decade or so, mainly played music videos and talked about concert dates and the gossip of, of, you know, musicians and, and, and what they were all up to, but that that has a history and that it shapes the rest of history. So, you know, yeah, that's, that's our, uh, our ongoing campaign here is to have everybody just understand uh, that culture, you know, has a history and is part of history. So why did we say at the top that we were including The Last Starfighter and Ferris Bueller's Day Off in the mix here? Well, God, I love The Last Starfighter, but that that film might actually be the most direct critique of the 80s spoiled affluent teen trope of any film of the era. It came out in 1984, 
starring Lance Guest and the late, great Robert Preston. And as maybe the best piece of trivia I've come upon yet in doing this podcast, I discovered that the guy who directed The Last Starfighter, Nicholas Charles Castle, played Michael Myers in the Halloween films. Isn't that just the best piece? Of, <laughs> that is the best piece of trivia ever. <laughs> and he's a big guy. You got to be a big guy for that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> anyway, back to Starfighter. It's about a very poor young man who lives in a trailer park and plays the one arcade game available to him with such devotion that he achieves the high point score. Note that there's no Commodore 64 for him. He's too poor. His life and the cartoon tone of the whole movie goes totally against the grain of most of the earnest 80s teen movies, which I think is one of the reasons why it's it's so great and why we wanted to make sure to mention it. But also, so what this kid, Lance Guest character, doesn't realize is that this arcade game that he got so good at was actually an intergalactic recruiting tool intended to identify possible new fighters for a stellar war against a totalitarian force. Sound like it might be an allegory for something? You have to be right about that. Uh, So our young man, seemingly just a lazy kid who spends too much time playing video games, is actually the savior of the galaxy precisely because he plays video games. This is every teenager's dream come true. So the message of the film seems to be, watch out, evil empire. The youth of America can still kick your butt. Absolutely. And it's a great message. As you say, every kid wants to be told that that is true. So why Ferris Bueller? Well, first of all, why not? No, I mean, seriously. We wanted to give a nod to Matthew Broderick's other teen movie, quite possibly a masterpiece and certainly a classic, for a couple of reasons. First, it's a John Hughes film. And we really couldn't go through these two episodes about teen movies of the 80s without including at least one of his because he's so emblematic of an entire sort of genre of movies. And he really sets the tone, the shape of teen movies from the minute that he arrives on the scene for at least the next decade. But also because if you look at it a certain way, other than the fancy car that gets destroyed and What is it with these expensive cars? We got the one in Risky Business, and now we got the one in Ferris Bueller. I think it's just the surefire way of (laughs) signaling the the family's affluence. But anyway, Ferris Bueller can actually be read as a repudiation of the very unrealistic affluence represented in much of 80s culture. Because what does Ferris do on his day off? Well, he enjoys human interaction. He goes to a public museum, a baseball game, and he hangs out with his friends. He's very decidedly not in front of a computer or a video game. He's still pretty good with a computer, though, changing his absences the same way David was able to change grades in war games. 
Yeah, it's very true that he is kind of doing the things that your parents tell you to do, which is go out and do things. And he did, he just happens to do it all in one day during school. I love when he tells Cameron, you know, we, we ate pancreas. <laughs> what, what else more, what more can you do? Yeah. It's a good message actually. <laughs> and what Ferris seems to be most famous for and his sister played by Jennifer Gray hates him for it is his appreciation of other people and his desire to make other people happy. And unlike in risky business, Capitalism doesn't offer an answer in this movie for the destroyed car. Ferris and his friends don't open a brothel to try to pay for it. What we do see, particularly in the iconic parade sequence, is a glorification of the power of popular culture in two forms, a parade and the Beatles, to bring people together, neither of which could be enjoyed by the average Russian. So that's it for Teenagers of the 80s. We hope you enjoyed reminiscing with us. Our next and final episode of the season will span many decades and three films, but only one man, Bond, James Bond. We hope you join us. Lives Agreed Upon is written and produced by Brian Krim and Leah Parody. Our theme was written by Simon Parody. We are a proud partner of the New Books Network and can be found wherever you find your favorite podcasts. For transcripts and links to what you hear in each episode, as well as bonus content, visit our companion website, liesagreedupon.com. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter at lies underscore upon.